0: Hey, och välkommen! Hello and welcome to a flatpack history of Sweden. Your instruction for putting together the Billy bookshelf of Swedish history. I am Chris,
1: and I'm Elsa, and this is episode forty-nine. It ain't over till it's over.
0: And uh, if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, however, 2021 is over, as this is now January 2022, and this is the first episode of the new year. So happy 2022, everyone, if you use this calendar for years and not the Chinese calendar, for example, and I hope you've had a lovely holiday season wherever you've been and whatever you've done to celebrate.
1: Yeah, we have had a lovely Christmas holiday, as always, merging our respective Swedish and British Christmas traditions in that great way that you do when you're a binational couple with families in two countries.
0: Indeed, but as we've got a lot of it in this episode... No time to reminisce. Uh, We're going to continue our chronological journey through the early 14th century in Sweden and see what happens now that the three fighting royal brothers, King Birja and Dukes Erik and Valdemar, have split up Sweden into three separate countries.
1: Yes, which is so strange to think of, that uh, there are now sort of three separate Swedens. We saw in our previous episode how these three brothers just could not get along after their father, King Magnus, had died. And their brotherly feud dragged both Sweden and Norway and Denmark through various alliances into a war that lasted almost a decade.
0: Well, technically, I guess it was like four or five mini wars because (laughs) they kept actually agreeing peace treaties and then fighting again. But... Yes, but before we resume our journey in the year 1311, let's do our Swedish phrase of the week. And this week the phrase is sell scar and slipstand dross. Yes,
1: yeah, sleepstand is a word we don't use very often anymore outside of this phrase perhaps. In English we call it grindstone. It's a large kind of wheel thing that you use to sharpen knives. And back in the day when knives and blades and scythes were much more of everyday tools, keeping them sharp was obviously a very important thing.
0: Well, I use knives almost every day in the kitchen, cutting onions.
1: Chris said that and he looked at me very menacingly like... No, I didn't. <laughs> I use knives every day.
0: Hmm. But we used to have a... Uh, a little van that would come down the streets um where my parents lived and they would sharpen your knives and your like hedge trimming equipment and uh, things like that they would come i think it cost two pounds fifty per knife They used did, to come around did,
1: did you grow up in the 1950s no <laughs> Would would, would this, this guy come around right after the milkman
0: <laughs> no but we did have a milkman <laughs>
1: Yeah. You did grow up in. This. Did people on your street used to say things like, hello, governor?
0: No. They said, oh, yes, I'm watching the cricket today before I get my knife sharpened from what? the knife sharpening man.
1: You, one more question. Did a little lady with an umbrella used to come flying down to your road and look after the children?
0: No, no.
1: <laughs> I can't believe you. Had I can't
0: believe you haven't heard of, like, the knife sharpening man. <laughs> So, yeah, this was a thing. This was a thing. He used to do scissors as well because, yeah, he used to do scissors, big uh, sort of like hedge clipper things, knives and stuff. Was there a big need in the nineties? Well, he'd come around once every, not even the 1990s, like I last saw him sort of five years ago. (laughs) I I love it. Because why chuck away an old knife? No, no, no. I'm not
1: saying this is a bad thing. It just seems... Like the, like, the need for it, wasn't it I think it's amazing when we learn these things about each other live in the podcast. <laughs> How has this never come? I've been to the house where you grew up, considering your parents still live there. I've been there loads of time. Mr. Knife Sharpening Man, this yeah. has never been around or been mentioned.
0: He would put a leaflet through the letterbox and say, I'm coming. We'll be in your street on Monday, the 20th of November. Get your knives ready. <laughs> yeah.
1: this, is so, this is so weird.
0: Yeah, and I like at the start of this episode, we said, this is going to be a long episode. We don't have time for stories, but I had to tell we, you about we, the yeah, knife man. Yeah,
1: we can't. Well, we didn't have any of that in net uh, But back to what this phrase means. So it translates to English as that's how you turn a grindstone.
0: But what does that actually mean? It
1: means to do something well, to do something and achieve the results you wanted. I don't know where the phrase comes from, but I guess if you turned a grindstone well and the knife got sharp, then you did it well and got the results you wanted. So that's the comparison.
0: But anywho, I don't think I've heard this word at all. Um, I guess it goes... Out of day-to-day use as time goes by, but this phrase is sort of the one thing that keeps it alive, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's quite interesting.
0: And from that very unrelated note, let's go back in time to 1311, where perhaps these brothers were building lots of uh, grindstones to build up their arms to rearm these three new they, parts of uh, Sweden.
1: They did have a lot of like spears and stuff that they needed to keep sharp.
0: They did indeed, and that's because these three separate nations are being ruled over by these three brothers. Former King of Sweden, Birger, Duke Eric, and Duke Valdemar, respectively. So when we go through the next couple of years, we're actually covering events that took place in three different nations. But for simplicity's sake and spoilers, they don't stay as three separate nations for very long. We'll just refer to it all as Sweden, and especially when uh, it's a bit hard knowing which area is which, isn't it?
1: Yeah, because these different parts don't get new names. They're still referred to as Sweden or more commonly as their respective county or counties. Lycra said maybe that's because throughout history there has been no need to give them separate names because they don't stay as separate nations for very long.
0: Yeah, it's not Sweden, the Democratic People's Republic of Sweden and the Republic of Democratic Peoples of Sweden or anything like that.
1: No, definitely not. And no democracy.
0: But presumably because these three nations don't stay separate for too long, that implies that the pause in this epic, brotherly feud won't last very long.
1: No, we haven't seen the last uh, of this. These three have another few tricks up their sleeves. But for now, it's 1311 and things are about to kick off at Sweden's eastern border, which, remember, is now all the way back over in modern-day Russia. Uh, We've seen lots of battles to and from here over the years and plenty of fighting with good old bad neighbour Novgorod. But between 1304 and 1310, when all of Scandinavia was busy fighting each other because the royal brothers had started fighting, not much happened in the
0: east. And that's all about to change. In 1311, Prince Dmitri Romanovitchi launches an attack on Tavastaland. According to the Novgorod Chronicle, this Novgorodian invasion force raided throughout the land where they burned villages, captured people, and destroyed the cattle. A bit unfair singling out the cattle, I guess. Um, And they eventually get as far as Tavastahus Fortress by the town of Vanaya. And this is where the army defending the fortress actually asks for a peace settlement. But thinking they're going to win quite easily, the Novgorod army rejects this proposal. Instead, they lay siege to the fortress and try and set it on fire. But unfortunately for them, they fail to break through to the innermost defences and give up after just three days and return to Novgorod. Uh, The Chronicle says... The place was very strong and firm on a high rock, not having access from any side. And they sent with greetings, asking for peace, but the men of Novgorod did not grant peace, and they stood three days and three nights wasting the district. They burned the large villages, laid waste all the cornfields, and did not leave a single horn of cattle. And going thence, they took the Kavgola River and the Perna River, and they came out on the sea and returned all world to Novgorod. So uh, perhaps they didn't want to risk a prolonged war or they had some issues with the supplies or something else happened in Novgorod and they had to go home. But either way, they uh, just head home after a relatively short time sieging this fortress. It could just be they wanted to turn up, remind Sweden that Novgorod was still a thing and make sure that the Swedes didn't get too comfortable with their eastern border.
1: Most of the area that is today Finland had been given to Duke Valdemar after the peace at Helsingborg. It seems like he, with the help of his brother Erik, attempted to get revenge for the attack by creating a naval blockade on the river Neva, which is so vital to Novgorod, but in the end nothing really comes of it. I guess it is difficult and demands a lot of resources if you want to try and control an entire sea for an extended period of time. Speaking of Erik, he's about to get married. He's been betrothed to the Norwegian princess Ingeborg for many years and had a weird on-again-off-again alliance situation with her dad, King Helkon, during the years he fought his brother Birjor, but Ingeborg is 20 years younger than Eric and was essentially a baby when they got betrothed.
0: Yeah, uh, worth waiting a bit, I guess.
1: Uh, yeah, but by 1312, she has reached the prime marital age of 11 and their wedding is held in Oslo.
0: This is actually a double wedding, as we hinted at a few episodes ago. At the same ceremony as Ingeborg and Erik are getting married, Erik's brother Duke Valdemar is also married, frustratingly to another Norwegian princess called Ingeborg. (laughs) Let's call her Ingeborg 2 for now. This second Ingeborg is a daughter of Eric II of Norway, the previous king and brother of current Norwegian king, Horkon. And so she is a cousin of the first Ingeborg. An only child, Ingeborg II's mother and King Eric of Norway's wife was a Scottish lady called Isabel Bruce. And yes, it is that Bruce. Isabel's sister is the King of Scotland, Robert the Bruce.
1: Wow! What what a quirk of history! I'm loving it! Uh, So this means that through marriage, Duke Vandermath's uncle-in-law is Robert the Bruce, who is right now King of Scotland. He took the throne in 1306 and minor spoilers in Scottish history, will remain King of Scotland throughout this episode and all the way up till 1329. This double marriage also means that Erik, by virtue of marriage to the first Ingeboy, does have a right to the Norwegian crown, which, if we judge from what we know of him and his ambitious nature so far, must have been quite something for him. Most importantly, Ingeboy's father, King Håkon, has no sons and consequently no natural male heir. Ingeboy had one older sister called Agnes, but amusingly, King Håkon had forgotten to marry his wife in time before Agnes was conceived. This meant that for political reasons... Ingeborg was seen as the prime heir to the throne as she was born into a legitimate marriage. So any children Erik and Ingeborg have, especially any sons, would be in line to inherit the Norwegian throne.
0: We should just mention that uh, it's one of those instances when looking back at history with our ideas and viewpoints of today, you see a real clash with what people were doing back then and not trying to forgive or make light of the fact in any way because we assume um, Ingeborg had no real say in the matter being so young, but it really does bring home how different marriage and in general society was uh, back then.
1: Yeah, at at least marriage for this section of society. This is the first time we've seen such a high-profile marriage where there is this very big age difference. But it's certainly not the first time we've seen marriage being used as a way of creating political alliances, especially inter-Nordic ones. That has been almost the norm for the last 300 years now for the ruling classes. But moving on from Duke Erik and his underage wife, uh, we have some interesting developments up north in 1313. This year, areas of the counties Helsingland, Medelpad and Ångormaland come under the church rule of Uppsala rather than under the rule of Trondheim in Norway. Trondheim, by the way, was called Nidaros back then. This seems to have been voluntary and instigated by the people in the area themselves to change from uh, Norwegian church rule to Uppsala and Sweden. Uh, The Swedish archbishop even travels up north to inspect these newly incorporated area himself.
0: Yeah, and what's interesting about this isn't so much the event itself, but what the records of it show us. It really shows you how little the Swedish authorities knew of what was going on in areas nominally under their control up north. These counties were formerly part of Sweden, but Swedish state control didn't reach there to the extent as it did further down south, you know, as even had Norwegians ruling the church there. And this is the same in areas of northern modern-day Finland. The records from this time even show that the authorities didn't know when the people in these areas of Sweden gathered to hold the ting, the the courts, for example. Which shows a pretty major hole in the state knowledge of their own country.
1: (laughs) Definitely. We've talked about the strengthening of the Swedish state for many episodes now, and this goes to show that whilst a governing state now exists down south, it's still struggling to reach the more remote areas up north. 1313 is also a busy year for our old friend King Birjol, or should we call him now only king of a small part of Sweden, Birgjör. Whilst his brother, Valdemar, got Finland in their settlement, Birger got Viboy, the fortress and town all the way east in what is today Russia.
0: And just Viboy, it mm. seems, yes. <laughs> in Finland.
1: <laughs> From here, Birger decides to launch an expedition. Or, or, well, it's an expedition with weapons, so I guess it's more of an army. But... He launches that into the Ladoga part of Karelia, which is controlled by Novgorod. The army is led by a man called Tuke Jonsson, which I want to mention just because I think the name Tuke is quite good. It's, you don't hear that anymore. Uh, Novgorod is at first successful in defending themselves against the Swedes, but eventually Tuke gets the upper hand and burns down the town of Ladoga. The burning of Ladoga hits Novgorod hard. In their chronicle, it says that the town was burnt down for our sins. Already the next year, 1314, the tide will turn, though, when a man by the name of Yuri Danilovich stages a coup and takes power in Novgorod. He's able to organize a better defense force and drives the Swedes back from the Ladoga area by the end of the year.
0: Another event also happens in the east in 1314, and that's in the town or fortress of Kexholm that the Swedes held for a year or so back in 1294. Well, now the local Karelians living in the area decided to revolt against the Novgorodians holding the fortress there and ruling the area. The Novgorod Chronicle says that the Karelian people killed the townsmen in Kexholm who were Russian and brought in Swedes to the town. The men of Novgorod with the lieutenant Fedor went against them, and the Karelian people surrendered, and the men of Novgorod killed the Swedes and the Karelian traitors. So there's a pretty quick and brutal coup and counter-coup there uh, going (laughs) on in Kexholm. And the following years, however, are described as rather peaceful in the area. And Sweden's eastern border remains at v so this mini-coup and also Birger's expedition haven't really changed much in the grand scheme of things if you're looking at the map. King Birger is busy elsewhere as well in this year. As we've talked about, the island of Gotland is a semi-independent territory at this point, but it still falls under the area that Birger is formally allowed to control. And now he wants to raise taxes there, to which the Gotlanders say...
1: Oh no, you won't.
0: Exactly. They refuse to accept these increased taxes. But Birger really wants or needs some hard cash from the Gotlanders, so he decides to go there himself and enforce this new taxation by force. This results in the Battle of Röcklinger Hill, where the Gotlandic force is actually victorious and Birger and his royal army is almost completely destroyed and Birger himself killed. After this dramatic show of force by the locals, both sides actually seem to be a bit more willing to negotiate. Everybody likes a battle first before the negotiations, it seems.
1: Sets the mood.
0: Indeed. And in this negotiation, the Gotlanders actually accept to pay a yearly tax to the king at a value of 200 marks of silver.
1: We're not sure how much B.I.R. had asked for initially, so maybe being almost killed in battle made him go down on how much he asked
0: for. You'd imagine so, considering his army was almost completely destroyed, that he'd have to go down.
1: (laughs) Yeah. A Swedish historian in the 1700s, Olof von Dalin, states in his History of the Middle Ages that either Torgil Knutsson or Biel's father, King Magnus, had previously asked for 400 marks of silver from the Gotlanders. So Biel might have asked for the same and only got half after the battle, but but that's us extrapolating from the facts.
0: And Ulf von der Leen.
1: We talked earlier about state presence, or perhaps lack of state presence, in northern Sweden, 1314 also marks the oldest preserved records of Swedish state presence in northern Norland. So further north than the counties of Helsingland, Medelpad and Ångormaland that we talked about just now. From 1314 we have records that mention the parishes of Umeå and Bygdeå. And these records are church tax collection, which indicates a level of organized church administration. There is also a record that has survived that shows that Uppsala Cathedral owned the right to salmon fishing in the Ume river.
0: Well, that's good for the church getting some tasty salmon from mm. Umio, and it's uh, not actually surprising that it's the church getting involved first because uh, you know we like we know they like political power, money, and just general influence. So it uh, seems to be the the church getting in there first before the Swedish state. Yeah. And um, yeah, the years go by, and considering all the fighting that took place in the first decade of the 1300s, this by comparison seems blissfully calm, and perhaps splitting the country into three was the right way to go. On a more personal note, in either April or May 1316, Duke Erik and Norwegian princess Ingeborg have their first child, a boy that they name Magnus. And as we saw from their marriage, this boy is now the heir to the Norwegian throne because he's the grandson of the current king, Håkon. So uh, this Magnus is a name to remember for the future. And also quickly mentioning it because this gets a bit confusing later on, Duke Erik's brother an old rival, King Bilya, Also has a son called Magnus, but he's actually older. He was actually born in 1300, so he's a teenager now that his cousin and namesake Magnus is born in 1316.
1: I mean, man, these people need to think about new names.
0: They really do.
1: (laughs) Now, Chris, you just said that this seemed like a blissfully calm period. Well, strap yourselves in because things are about to go crazy again.
0: Indeed it is, and it's now 1317, on the 10th of December to be precise, and we're going to witness an event that has gone down in Swedish history as the sherping's Yesterbude, or in English, the Feast of sherping. Now, if we remember all the way back to 1306, Dukes Eric and Valdemar captured their brother, King Birger, in something called the Hortuna Lerken, the Hortuna Games. And they sneakily captured him after he had invited them to stay with him and kept him in prison with his wife for years. And then eventually, after some these years of fighting... He was forced to split Sweden in three and give two parts to his brothers. Well, it's now been more than ten years since that first happened, but Birger has been thinking of revenge this whole time.
1: Yeah, he is ready to get his own back. Uh, They've been going along now for seven years, each ruling their separate parts of Sweden, But Björj has not forgotten that he was once king of all of Sweden and that's what he wants to be again. And so now the game is back on. It's time for Medieval Sweden's Royal Brotherly Feud Part 2 Revenge is a Dish Best Served Drunk. Chris, do you want to go through what actually happens?
0: Yes, so as we said, it's the 10th of December, and Bielia has invited his brothers to his castle, Nysherping's Hoose, ironically the same place where they had kept him imprisoned for those two years where he was a prisoner, and they've been invited to have an early Christmas celebration. Duke Eric is initially quite hesitant, because after all these brothers haven't exactly been on Christmas celebrating terms before, but eventually both him and Valdemar agree to come. Um, unfortunately, they should have been listening to the Life of Caesar podcast, which, <laughs> where they say on many occasions, never go to a party in your honour. Yeah, I
1: mean, like, how stupid is Eric and Valdivar? <laughs> well, ooh, our brother that we've hated forever and that we've fought so much with wants to invite us over for a Christmas party. Isn't that nice? What's the worst thing that can happen?
0: Well, we'll see what's the worst that can happen, because once they've arrived, Birger says that, unfortunately, uh, I haven't done very good counting or preparing for this party, so there's not enough room for all of your bodyguards to stay inside the castle. Because, of course, uh, Eric and Valdemar, as leaders of their own little countries, are bringing an entourage of guards, soldiers, servants, slaves, and whatnot. They don't travel lightly. But anyway, somehow, Birger manages to convince his brothers that their entourage can have uh, much nicer quarters down in the town. Maybe he'd book some last-minute Airbnbs or something like that. We don't really know where he got them from, but presumably, you know, there's, there's small villages around Nysherpings Hoos Castle at this time. But it would be nice if the brothers could just have some time to themselves in the castle without having to worry about advisors, protocols, taking minutes and making it all formal and all that nonsense. So like any good party it gets going and uh, you know, like any family reunion after a long time uh, they seem to drink a lot. And Bilia is clearly watching his own drink though and proceeds to make sure his brothers get really blind drunk. And on the night between the 10th and the 11th, Biyo and his closest advisors and guards jump on Eric and Valdemar. They bundle them up and they throw them into the castle dungeons, perhaps in the very same cell he was once kept in with his wife.
1: Can you imagine the smile on Biyo's face? It's been nearly two decades of on and off fighting with his brothers. They had imprisoned and humiliated him, and now he gets his own back. This is actually where the phrase that I quoted back in episode 47, uh, the phrase in the Eric Chronicle, this is the moment that this comes from, when Biel says to his brothers... Mindes i då något av lek, fullgörla mindes han mik, tänne är ej bättre hin. Or in English, do you remember the Hotuna game? I remember it well. This is no better than it.
0: Yeah, so he's saying, remember when you got me? Well, I'm getting you back. And Biria, by extension, is back. Legend even has it that he threw the key to the cell where his brothers were kept into the Nisharping Stream, a small river that runs through the town. And in fact, a schoolboy found a key in the stream in the 1800s, and some people claim this is the very same key. In fact, it's even in a museum listed as Nisharping's Whose Key. So uh, that would be incredibly lucky if it was the same key, but you never know. It has even been dated to the 1300s, so that makes it even more likely, or slightly likely, that it is that very same key. But,
1: and this is a major but, Joy is brief for Biriel because now things don't go exactly as he had planned. He thought that the areas that were previously controlled by his brothers would just welcome him back as king of all of Sweden. After all, that's what he was just 15 years or so earlier. But no, instead, Sweden is pretty much thrown into a civil war, or all three areas declare war on each other, as... Powerful individuals, noblemen, and individual areas and towns declare loyalty to either Bielior or to his brothers.
0: So, let's just paint a quick picture of what the situation looked like in Sweden now that Dukes Eric and Valdemar are imprisoned. The west of Sweden, the county of Kalmar in the east, along with the nearby island of Erland and the city of Stockholm are controlled by supporters of Eric and Valdemar. King Beria controls the counties of Nærke, Sørmannland, Østerjørtland, along with most of Smallland. Over in Finland, the fortress town of Vibor is also still on King Birja's side, but pretty much the rest of the Finnish territories, mainly the counties of Orbu and Tavastahus, support the dukes. And as we said, state control up in the north is still so weak that these areas aren't really actively involved. There aren't noblemen there with huge armies that can um, declare their support for either side, so they're sort of... Neutral by necessity, I guess. And also, uh, not to be forgotten, Gotland asserts their independence again, but state that they sort of support the Dukes if they had to support anyone. Probably because they're getting back at Birger for those taxes and that battle that they had to fight a few years ago. But crucially, of course, Birger is proclaiming himself king of a united Sweden once again, and he's going to fight for it.
1: After having imprisoned his brothers and in his attempt to firmly take back control of Sweden, Birgör heads to Stockholm. He demands the city open its gates uh, for their rightful king and his men, but the commander of the city, a man called Ingvald Estridsson, he refuses. Instead, fighting ensues just outside the city wall, at the Battle of Norrmalm in December 1317, Birio's army is defeated. At the same time, the people of Stockholm quickly work to improve the city's defenses, showing to Birio that they would rather fight him than accept him as king.
0: The Battle of Norrmalm sounds like something that could happen today. There was a riot, is yeah. what the newspapers would call it, because Normam is still a very important area of Stockholm.
1: Yeah, and whereas it was then outside of the city walls, today it's very much where the city centre is.
0: Yes. In February 1318, things take a turn for the worst. Well, at least for Eric and Valdemar themselves, because they die.
1: Yeah, that is taking a turn for the worst, really. Especially considering they starved to death. We don't know exactly when they die, but in perhaps the way things can only happen in the 1300s, their deaths are kept secret until the summer of 1318. But it doesn't really help King Bir in the short term anyway. As we've seen, the dukes have strong support in many areas of Sweden, but perhaps even more crucially, even after their death... Their cause continues to be supported by several powerful individuals in Sweden, and these people see Birger as a usurper. Historians such as Bengt Liljegren and Ulf Sundberg have pointed out that Birger misjudged the strength of his opponents quite significantly. And remember, Duke Erik is survived by his son, who these supporters also support, despite him being just a few years old.
0: Yeah, Birya clearly thought that if his two brothers were killed, everyone else would just reluctantly say... Okay, well, there's just Biria left, let's just let him be king. Whereas the feelings were clearly quite strong against him. And three examples of key individuals who take up arms against Biria at this point, or at the very least are very vocal in their opposition, are the lawman of Upland, ironically and frustratingly a namesake of Biria called Biria Magnusson, the king's exact same name, and two powerful knights, Karl Elinason of Kalmar and everyone's favourite, Mats Shetelson, who we talked about back in episode 46 when he was off being a hero leading Swedish troops in battles against Novgorod, whilst Mask Torgil Knutsson was in charge of Birger's Regency Council. So this Matt Shettleson has been around for a long time as an experienced knight, military commander and also statesman. And most importantly, he really knows how to command troops in battle and can rally men to support his cause.
1: This really goes to show the strength and the quality, so to say, of the opposition that is mounted against Biel. Additionally, it's not just good commanders that stand up to fight Bialyar, but because of the timing of when the news about what Biol has done reaches the people, there are a lot of markets going on where people gather and trade, and these make for excellent recruitment stations. People who ordinarily live out on their separate farms are now gathered in spring and summer at these markets in villages and towns and they can all be told the news about what horrible Birjor has done and be asked to join the fight against him. By spring the following year, several armies have been gathered and head to Nyschöping, where Birjor is based.
0: At the same time, Birger's own forces are quite weak at this point. He hasn't taken the time to strengthen them. And once again, he has to turn to his old friend and ally and brother-in-law, King Eric Menved, down in Denmark. He must be getting quite frustrated at all these messages coming from sweden saying hello sir it's uh your brother again he really wants more men and this happens can you once help me more. fight
1: my brothers again please
0: even though my brothers are dead they, and i had friends
1: bilio <laughs> really is the friend you don't want
0: he is really and this time danish help comes at a price because yeah, King Eric is probably sick of constantly having to come to his brother-in-law's rescue. Birger has to accept that King Eric will remain in overall command of the campaign, and Birger even has to pawn southern smorland to King Eric to get him to agree to send the troops in the first place.
1: Well, that is quite different from what it was like ten years ago or so when Eric voluntarily got involved to help Birger fight his brothers. Also, considering the major generals of the age are supporting the dead dukes, Birger has to turn to his 18-year-old son Magnus to lead his army, and Magnus gets sent down south to Denmark to liaise with King Erik. Eventually Magnus arrives back in Sweden with an army of 600 Danish soldiers, Birjod joins them in Östergötland, and it's not long before they face an army loyal to the dead dukes at the Battle of Sjärskind. Uh, Sjärskind, by the way, is a village in Östergötland, sort of halfway between the towns of Linköping and Söderköping.
0: So this is in the heart of Sweden. Mm. This is where all the important decisions are going on. So this is really a clash for Sweden. But like we've said probably about 25 (laughs) times at this point, we don't know what happens in this battle. The only thing we know is that Birger's side loses, but he manages to escape with some surviving Danish soldiers west into the county of Vestiotland. This moves the entire focus of the fighting more to the west of Sweden, because Birger's not just going to give up this time, he's going to keep fighting. He intends to return and reconquer Vesterjotland, which has always been his brother's traditional heartland. He gets even more reinforcements from Denmark, and he manages to gather some more Swedes who are surprisingly perhaps still loyal to him or have changed sides. There are still some left in the woodwork yet to declare their allegiance, and somehow King Birger manages to persuade them to join him. On the 19th of March, 1319, he again faces a force loyal to his deceased brothers, this time at Karya B. Longa, close to the town of Falsherping. The rebel army, if we can call uh, his brother's supporters rebels, have been reinforced by naval crews from Norway, which is perhaps a bit odd considering this is battle on land, but maybe they were sort of marines or something like that. Either way, this is the only mention of any involvement from Norway in this conflict up till now, after Bilger has captured his brothers, so we can't entirely be sure why this is happening, but presumably some uh, courtiers or advisers have said, hey, king of Norway, your daughter was married to one of these dead dukes, you could at least send some troops to help get some revenge.
1: The forces loyal to the Dukes are well entrenched and Bial decides to delay the attack. So he instead suggests a three-day ceasefire which the other side agrees to. This happens right before the battle is about to commence. The dead Dukes rebel force largely consists of local farmers who use the ceasefire to head home and get more food. And that's when Biya, perhaps remembering the sneaky tactics uh, that his father and grandfather liked to employ, he breaks the ceasefire and launches an attack. Which is, of course, successful since most of his opponents were literally off getting snacks.
0: Yeah, it's like, that's quite sneaky, isn't it? Um, yeah, as you said, they're, they're just going home to grab some food. And so the ones who stayed nearby the original battlefield are just killed.
1: Yeah, that's not a very fair way to fight.
0: No, but like you said, the members of the Biabu family have never been strangers to dirty tricks. And after this mini-victory, Biala decides to head back northeast towards Linköping and Hueninga. Perhaps his plan with this move was to draw his opponents away from his home base of Nieschaping which was further to the east. Whether or not this was the case, in April he is defeated in a decisive battle back at Söderchaping and this defeat pretty much spells the end for Birger, at least as a powerful political figure. After the battle, the rest of his surviving Danish soldiers are now fed up of fighting for this potentially losing cause, or at least looks to be losing cause at this point, and they just effectively decide to head home. This leaves Birger alone, and so he decides to leave the Swedish mainland altogether by the end of April.
1: Quick trivia note, the army that defeats Birger at Söderköping is led by a knight called Knut Porse, Knut is from Halland and has been employed by the courts of both the wife of Duke Valdemar and the wife of Duke Erik, both of whom were called Ingeborg and came from Norway. In fact, Knut Posse will marry Ingeborg, the wife of the late Duke Erik, in 1327 and become the stepfather of his son Magnus.
0: Wow, so he's marrying into the Norwegian royal family and really upping the level of medieval Scandi royal soap opera drama that we've uh, uh, seen so far. I don't even really know what else to comment. It's all (laughs) becoming so ridiculous.
1: I know. So uh, let's just leave it and go back to what happens when B.A.R. leaves the Swedish mainland.
0: Well, he doesn't entirely leave the Swedish mainland politically because he leaves his son Magnus at Stegeborg Fortress to hold out and continue fighting from there. It's one last-ditch effort to keep at least one tiny foothold on Swedish soil. Stegeborg Fortress is a strategic castle in Östergötland and something worth keeping hold of if they can, so it's, it's, it's worth a shot. Whilst he's been outclassed on the battlefield, Birger hasn't given up all hope just yet. So when he leaves mainland Sweden, he heads to Gotland, despite the uh, troubles he's faced there previously, and from there he tries to gather two expeditions to go help his son Magnus. Unfortunately for Birger, both of these expeditions fail to get Magnus and his men out of the sticky situation they found themselves in at Stegabor a Danish naval force that also tries to mount a rescue operation similarly fails. In that Danish operation, Birger's main surviving supporter, a man called Yuan von Bronckau, is captured and executed. So he's really got nobody left because, according to the Eric Chronicle, it was von Bronckau who helped Birger launch the Feast of Knee Sherping and was the main knight who physically captured his brothers Eric and Valdemar and dumped them in their prison cell.
1: The situation is indeed looking more and more dire for Birgjörg. Now that they have control of all of the Swedish mainland except for Stegeborg Fortress, the group of powerful men who had originally gathered in support of Dukes Erik and Valdemar trying to bring some order to the country by electing the knight Mats Sjetilson Drotts and Foreman. Foreman, I think, is an interesting title, by the way. It sounds a bit like he's in charge of a factory or something. But yes, essentially, they make Shetilson their spokesperson and top decision maker. This probably happens on the 27th of June. And at the same time, they also formalize a new council to rule the country whilst they decide what to do about the kingship. The first thing this council try to do is to claim that last bit of land holding out against them and they target Byriel's son Magnus. It doesn't take too long as by the summer of 1318 both Stegeboy and Nyköping, Byriel's last outposts in Sweden, fall. His son Magnus is captured when Stegeboy falls. Magnus is uh, taken to Stockholm, where he is imprisoned, waiting to be put on trial by the forces loyal to the dukes.
0: And this essentially marks the end of the partition of Sweden. Now, one group of people has control of all of mainland Sweden and the country is reunited. Hence, by what we're talking about, the council need to decide about the kingship. That's just the one kingship. There's no intention now to go back to this three-part Sweden. But unfortunately for Birger, it doesn't have anything to do with him. And that's because the next thing Matt Shattelsen and this new council do is try and make Birger and King Eric of Denmark agree to a peace. In spite of their absolutely rotten military position and the fact that their heir to the throne, Magnus, is a prisoner of war, the two men refuse. Matt Shetelson, perhaps wanting to end this all quickly, decides to fight fire with fire literally. He gathers a large army in Jönköping and in October 1318 he launches an attack on Danish territories. He routs Danish troops who dare to stand against him partly because he's also joined by rebelling Danish troops who are in opposition to King Eric. The Danish survivors actually flee eastwards towards Erland. Now Matt Shattelson is able to call on these rebelling Danes to help him because Eric, in the meantime, while all this has been happening, has been doing his best to run Denmark into the ground. After years of financial and agricultural problems from 1315 to around 1317, the crops in Denmark have continually failed. And this causes great hardship on the people, exacerbated by years of financial mismanagement. And this meant there was nothing left for King Eric to tax. So the treasury was empty, King Eric couldn't fund his armies, and had to start selling off royal land. This catastrophic way of ruling a country was annoying a lot of Danes, both... Farmers who couldn't feed their families and dukes and nobles who wanted the country to actually work properly. And so this creates a lot of internal resistance to Eric's rule and has tipped over the tipping point and some have taken up arms with Sweden to fight against him. So back to the Swedish attack on Denmark though. Matt Shettleson, being an older and very experienced knight at this point, has made a well-structured and thought-out plan for his attack, and his forces are also superior to those of the Danes, or at least the Danish king. On 26th of October, after their campaign has uh, run riot through Skorna, they defeat a Danish army led by Count Ludwig Albrechtson at Murbilonga on the island of Erland and this is a crushing defeat for the Danes. 300 professional Danish soldiers are captured, and the survivors of the battle turn around again and flee back southwest into Skjörn. Sheskosn follows up his victory by pursuing them and looting most of Skjörn and burning everything he couldn't take away with him.
1: This defeat, and the destruction that follows, seems to make King Erik see sense and agree to negotiations. On the 11th of November, a peace treaty is signed in Roskilde in Denmark. Uh,
0: uh, a date which will go down in history as a ceasefire date as well.
1: Oh yeah, true. It is unclear if Birger himself is involved in this peace treaty, but it states that there should be a ceasefire for three and a half years and that Sweden would not support any Danish rebels fighting against King Erik and that Denmark would not support Birger if he started another Swedish civil war.
0: At this point, Birgir realizes that it's really all over for him. He could never hope to win a Swedish civil war without Danish support, especially as he has nothing left on the Swedish mainland, and he's just sitting on a sort of semi independent, bit ambivalent Gotland.
1: Yeah, maybe Birgir is finally realizing what we have all known for a while now that it is over.
0: True, but it still takes Birger until the spring of 1319 to admit it was over and leave Gotland. One thing that might have speeded up his willingness to leave Gotland is the fact that once the spring weather has made it easier to travel by sea, Matt Shetelson and the rest of the Swedish council have decided to gather an army and head to Gotland to get Birger once and for all. What Get Birger means is uh, quite unclear. Was it to kill him, just deport him, so to speak, or make him publicly announce that he was no longer king of Sweden? It's unsure, but it was presumably one of these options. Luckily for him, Birger hears about this in advance. He probably was expecting something like this was going to happen, to be honest, and so he decides to get going first and flees to the only real option he has, Denmark.
1: So Sweden is now without a recognized king. Birjor is often a foreign country and the supporters of his deceased brothers are ruling Sweden with this new council. A few years ago we had three rulers and now we have none. Uh, easy come easy go in medieval Sweden, uh, that's for sure.
0: It's like whack-a-mole, yeah. they pop up and then boff, boff, boff. Because they certainly don't get any chance uh, to get a bit too comfy on the throne or whatever area that they're ruling. But nonetheless, it's still the people who were loyal to Dukes Eric, and Valdemar, led by Matt Shettleson, who were in charge. And they decide that now the throne is officially empty and Beer is gone, It's time to elect a new proper king to unite the country formally, but also one, crucially, that they can influence. Ideally, looking at an identical flat-packed Swedish king from the 1300s, they'd like someone within the Białbe family line, because that brings with them legitimacy and a bit of alliances, and some international prestige, especially when negotiating with foreign powers like the German traders, but also someone they could influence. And so they look around, doesn't take them very long because they see that who else is better for the job than deceased Duke Eric's three-year-old son Magnus, because uh, to be honest, no one else is around. They look in the pool of candidates that is one, and they pick that one child.
1: Oh yay! Another child king. How many of these have we had now?
0: And we've had a few, and for the noblemen and the council, Magnus is a pretty good choice. He he ticks these criteria because he's a direct descendant of Duke Eric who they supported throughout the Civil War period, and that also makes Magnus a de facto and de jure member of the Bielbuk dynasty. And they've been on the throne since the 1230s now, so it's nearly 100 years, so there's plenty of legitimacy to draw on there. And of course, the major thing with Magnus is that from his mother's side, he's a descendant to the King of Norway, and last but not least, it's really easy for the council, Matt Shattleson, to control Magnus. Well, because he's three years old, they just put him to bed and tell him to stop crying.
1: <laughs> yeah, true. When you look at it like that, it makes more sense. Uh, in fact, their decision becomes even easier in May 1319 because that's when young Magnus gets another promotion.
0: Yes, because, perhaps expected, but not necessarily at this time, Magnus becomes king of Norway. That's because King Haakon V of Norway has died with no sons. And so, through his mother, Magnus becomes king of Norway, just as we expected might happen previously.
1: Just two months to the day later... Little Magnus is officially elected king of Sweden at a ceremony at Mura Stenar on the 8th of July, 1319. As a consequence, Sweden and Norway is now, for the first but not last time in history, united under personal union rule. Sweden and Norway has the same king.
0: Hey hey Noreg, there's Sempahiglia the me.
1: Yes, always good to get together with Norway. And as if that wasn't enough, this is a bit of a Rex Fact, as the Rex Factor podcast would call it. Little Magnus is now ruling, or well, a council is ruling on his behalf for now, but he's ruling the largest kingdom in Europe if we go by size of land. (laughs) The now joint kingdom of Norway and Sweden also comes with what is modern-day Finland, Iceland and Greenland.
0: It's like you see packets on TV. It's like, also includes. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> and you get all, this, uh, all these places for free.
0: And that's because Norway has been in charge of Iceland and Greenland for a while at this point. And in fact, Norway also came with Shetland and the Orkney Islands and also the Faroe Islands because they were all part of Norwegian control for centuries up until this point. So they've even got part of Scotland.
1: This is pretty extraordinary. From the mid-Atlantic to the western parts of modern-day Russia, all of it is now Sweden. Or, well, Sweden-Norway. But little Eric can't get too excited, if he even considers that, considering he's three, because the council makes full use of the fact that they have a new and very young king on the throne and writes the Frihetsbrev, literally letter of freedom. This letter states that the king is not above the law. It also states the privileges the members of the council enjoy and forbids the king to, on his own accord, institute new taxes. So they're taking this opportunity to consolidate their own power uh, before they start even thinking of serving the new and very young king.
0: We'll have many reasons to return to King Magnus and the new Norwegian-Swedish Kingdom in future episodes, but this has already been a very jam-packed episode, so we should definitely start rounding it off now.
1: I think you're right. Uh, Just before we go, we should finish the story of the lives of two of our main characters in recent episodes, because, well, they literally finish around now, King Erik Menved, the Danish king who has so often had to come to his ally and brother-in-law Bielos rescue over the years, well, he dies on the 13th of November, 1319, aged 45. Perhaps wise from all the fighting with Denmark over the last decades, the Swedish Regency Council quickly signs a non-hostility agreement with his younger brother and successor, Christoffer II.
0: This Christoffer actually ascends the throne because of a terrible accident involving his brother Erik's wife and King Birger and the Duke's sister, Ingeborg. First of all, the couple seemed to have been horrendously unlucky, having eight sons who died as very young children, as well as six miscarriages.
1: In 1318, the royal couple finally did have a son who lived, and this caused great celebration in Denmark and led to some sort of public display of the child. However, when Ingeboy, travelling in a carriage, tried to show off the child to the enthusiastic crowd, the carriage tipped over and Ingeboy dropped her son, who fell to the ground, broke his neck and died. Which is just, considering everything that had happened to them before, and it's just awful.
0: Yeah, it's hard to imagine the pain the couple would have felt at that moment. But yes, this happens a year before King Eric dies, so there's no time to have a further heir who will take the throne, and so the Kingdom of Denmark passes to Eric's brother, Christopher, to become King of Denmark.
1: Soon after, in 1320, the Regency Council execute the other Magnus of the story. King Beelius' son. He had been in prison for two years since his capture at Stegeboi Castle, and now he is removed from the picture entirely.
0: This means that ex-King Beelius is all alone. He's in Denmark, his new brother-in-law king is on the throne, but in absolutely no mood to take on a united Sweden-Norway, and so offers no help at all to the pitiful ex-Swedish king. And just one year later, on the 31st of May, 1321, Birger dies in exile in Denmark. He's only around 40, maybe 41 years old at this point. But his Danish friends honour him with a burial in the Royal Burial Church in Ringsted, where you can still go and see his tomb to this very day.
1: Now, to summarise his life in a pitch for a Hollywood film... Birio, the man who was first king of Sweden, then imprisoned with his wife by his brothers, then fought them for years and dragged all of Scandinavia into war. Uh, He then got to be king only of a small bit of Sweden, but plotted revenge imprisoned and killed his two brothers, before thinking he could be king of a united Sweden once again, only for his brother's supporters to rally against him and kick him out of the country and execute his son before he died in Denmark. All before he reached what we would now call middle age. <laughs> I mean, what a life for our one and only king called Birger!
0: Absolutely, is pretty action-packed and historian Bengt Lillegren was certainly right when he described King and his brothers, Erik and Valdemar's feud as being of Shakespearean proportions. That's a quote that we really like because it's so true. The last three decades of Swedish history has been nothing short of mad in terms of politics and rulers. But now these three brothers are gone and it's the end of an era. Gone is the fighting trio of brothers in Sweden, and gone is King Eric of Denmark, and also King Horkon of Norway, who supported either side. Like we said, we'll come back to young King Magnus of uh, Sweden, Norway, and everything else that happened during his reign later on. But for now, we'll probably take a short break from the royal stuff for an episode or so, and focus on a few other things that happened during this time that we haven't really been able to dedicate too much time to, because the overall kinging story has been so crazy we thought if we stopped talking about it it would be quite hard to get back into the flow of things so there are a few extra things coming up soon
1: yes so stay tuned and in the meantime don't forget to check out our website and follow us on social media and if you like us please leave a review on whichever platform you listen to us on and until next time uh take care. Bye bye. Hey Dale.